Radio Mano Papachango. Dr. Christopher Ryan here, the doctor being largely a joke, but still. Uh, there's a guy here today that you're going to hear, Adi Jaffe, very cool guy. Man, my chair is noisy. Listen to that shit. Jesus Christ, somebody oil this thing. Uh, anyway, Adi Jaffe, he's an addiction specialist who uh, comes at it from a unique perspective, uh, which we get into. Um, a very interesting guy. He had his own issues with addiction, and, and to the extent that these issues are lifelong, which some people believe, um, he has his own issues with addiction. But, you know, the, the tradition of the wounded healer goes way back. And you might even say that any healer who hasn't been wounded uh, really isn't quite qualified. So I think it's uh, it's wonderful that he comes at this um, from a place of personal experience, having faced these challenges himself, having found his way out of the maze that he's trying to help other people out of. You know, I, I look at healers as being similar to lifeguards, particularly when it's uh, behavioral, mental health stuff, psychiatrists, psychologists, addiction specialists, social workers. These are all people who are trying to help you when you get caught in an undertow. You get caught up in something. You think you're out there swimming around in the waves, having a good time. And next thing you know, you're being pulled out to sea and you start to get desperate and you start to feel weak and you start to panic and that's when you turn to the shore and you fucking hope there's somebody there who sees what's going on who can help you. Now, there are two kinds of healers. There are, and they're both well-intentioned. I don't mean this as a criticism of anyone, but there are those who stand on the beach and yell instructions. Swim across the current. It's hard to hear them, though, when you're out there. Even if you do hear them, it's hard to do what they say. Or maybe they throw you a life preserver. Maybe it lands near you, but you're too weak to swim to it. Or maybe you grab onto it, but you hold onto it and you just keep drifting further out to sea. That's, your, that's the most common kind of healer. But then there's another kind of healer. Very rare, but they do exist. And those are the kind who are equivalent to the lifeguard who dives in and swims out to you, puts their own life at risk, puts their own happiness, their own welfare at risk in order to help other people. They're very rare, and they're rare for a reason. That's very hard work. It's very dangerous work. Um, it's exhausting. I, I was a lifeguard in high school, very briefly, uh, at a lake in Connecticut, I, I did my lifeguard training and had this job at the lake. And uh, as I recall, it was a summer with an unusually high amount of rain. So I spent most of the summer uh, sitting in this building playing cards. 
uh, and I didn't really spend much time lifeguarding. But I did the training. And the first thing I learned, which has stuck to me to this day, is that when you try to save someone, they'll kill you if they can. Because they are in such a state of panic that if you swim out to them and get within reach of them, they'll grab you, they'll grab your head and climb on top of you and wrap their legs around you and wrap their arms around you and they won't let go even though you are sinking under them. They're not thinking straight. They're in a total state of panic. So when you're trying to save someone, you need to protect yourself because otherwise you both go down. And you read about this all the time, right? You read about these cases all the time. Somebody gets swept away by a wave. Someone else jumps in the water to try to save them and they both drown. Well, many times the reason they both drown is that the first person is so freaked out that they end up pulling the other person down with them. Whereas if they could just relax somehow they'd be saved. So I don't know. There's some sort of lesson in that. Uh, Take care of yourself. You know, it's the same thing they say in the airplanes. Put the mask over your own nose and mouth before you turn to assist others, right? Because otherwise you're going to pass out and you're not going to help anybody and you both die. What the hell does this have to do with addiction? Well, it's just uh, Adi is uh, clearly, he's a guy who jumps in the water and swims out. He knows what he's talking about. He's been in the water himself. He knows what it's like to be swept out to sea. And so when he sees other people in danger, he looks at it from a different perspective than than most of us. So I admire that and respect that. I'm not going to talk a lot more because I'm actually recording this in advance. Uh, This is a week before it comes out, but I'm leaving for Spain tomorrow so I'll be in Spain for a week and I uh, won't have a chance to record an intro and do all that kind of stuff over there. So this one's sort of, uh, you know, pre-baked, take it home, put it in the oven for a few minutes and warm it up and hey, it seems fresh. Anyway, uh, so if the world has ended in the last week, if the United States has attacked started dropping bombs on North Korea or Donald Trump has decided that he's totally unqualified to be president of the United States and done the right thing and bowed out and fired himself. Uh, I'm not commenting on it because I don't know that's happened yet. It's just wishful thinking as far as that Trump thing goes. I'm going to play you into this conversation with a song called Love is Free by a band called Gasoline Lollipops. And then later I'm going to find an appropriate spot in our conversation and interrupt it by playing another song by Gasoline Lollipops called Fast Train. Both of these songs feel kind of um, relevant to a discussion of substance abuse. um, And I really like both the songs. They came to my attention because of uh, a woman, I guess I can call her a friend of mine, although I've never met her, but we've been corresponding a bit. She uh, sent me some emails and a really funny, charming woman. And, and uh, we went back and forth a bit. And then she said, oh, hey, there's a local band you might like. And uh, she sort of scared me a little, uh, Becky, because she said that, uh, what did she say? They were like, something like, uh, they're like a mixture of like folk and punk. And I thought, oh, that sounds terrible. 
that sounds like something I'm really not gonna like. Uh, but I I checked them out and I was wrong. I like them. They're great. Anyway, they're a Colorado band, and you can if you're in Colorado or near Colorado or just have heard of Colorado, I'm sure you can download their music. You don't need to be in Colorado. We're living in an interconnected world now. So go to gasolinelollipops.com if you dig their music, as I think you will, and support those motherfuckers. You know, download some songs. Hell yeah. So thanks, Becky. Thanks, Gasoline Lollipops. I hope to see both of you in Colorado when the van and I get out there. Speaking of the van, I don't want to keep calling it the van. I mean, come on. It's got to have a name, right? So if you've got some clever idea for what I should call the van, let me know, you know, post it on Reddit or tweet it at me or, or Instagram it at me or email it at me or, you know, whatever, you know, write it on a rooftop and have a satellite or a drone take a picture and send that to me. I don't know. Just bring it to my fucking attention one way or another. And, um, yeah, if somebody comes up with a name that we end up using, I don't know. I'll give you something. I'll give you a grand prize. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'll come and park in your driveway and use your shower. Hey, how's that for a prize? Uh, yeah, I'll buy you dinner. I'll buy you a beer. I'll take you out to see gasoline lollipops. I don't know. Whatever it takes. Just send me interesting names for the van. So far, we've got Van Morrison. Okay. <laughs> um Rolling Thunder, which is a, a shaman that Stanley Krippner was close to in the 60s. I like that name. Uh, you know, it's got the rolling, you rolling, uh, rolling blackout, which I just I've always thought is a funny phrase, although it refers to people losing their air conditioning on hot days. But still, it's a funny phrase, rolling blackout. Uh, I don't know. Someone was saying it should be like a Ron Burgundy reference because the van is burgundy colored. But then what? Van Burgundy? I know that doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to get that. So anyway, if you have a good idea for my tangentially driving tour van uh, that's going to be out in America this summer, coming soon to a driveway near you, bring it to my attention and you will win the grand prize. All right, so this is Love is Free by, what the hell is their name? Gasoline Lollipops. Now, there's a strange name. I wonder who came up with that. Uh, Love is Free, and then later you're going to hear Fast Train by the same band. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Adi Jaffe, and uh, I will catch you next week. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. You send me packing down Green River Valley I know that if you couldn't then No one would happen Lost myself drinking with those stray dogs in the alleys Till the whiskey sold my bones Well, night I came on cold Blowing off that muddy river I felt so goddamn old I didn't have the strength to shiver Moon swallowed whole I'm in the sky spit back that sliver I knew I had to go it alone Love is free So take all you can 
world I know you think is full of honey Maybe someday I look back and think it's funny How you always had to burn it down I'm sitting in my living room in Topanga on a rainy, drizzly day with Adi Jaffe, who is an expert on addictions. Is that the way to describe you? How do you describe yourself? <laughs> we just um, met in a bar. What do you confused, do? Confused. Confused. Um, no, what do, how do I describe myself? Yeah, I guess um, addiction expert. I'm a behavioral neuroscientist by training. I got my PhD UCLA uh, in psychology, but with an emphasis on behavioral neuroscience and uh -huh. statistics. Um, and so addiction, neuroscience, and then now I'm a self-proclaimed um, study of stigma and shame as primary motivators. Mm. Um, so which are, I motivators of all um, behavior or specifically All behaviors and especially addiction? though problematic mental health and, uh, and addiction issues, absolutely. Mm. Wow, that's a very, very interesting area. Because would you say that where does contemporary American society lie on the spectrum of shame? Well, I mean, so I, I was born in Israel. I uh, lived there until I was 14. And, you know, it has its own standards, I would say. But, you know, I think without a doubt, as far as I'm concerned, there are more high-risk, stigmatized, shameful areas around the kind of puritanical right. American society than I've encountered, I would say almost in most other places. Yeah. 
you know, save maybe some of the strictly Muslim kind of countries that uh, that I've been at, which are not many, where it's not even an issue of shame so much there. It's um, it's a real culture of um, of taboo. Or social control. Yeah, here yeah. it's it's so insidious because it seems like there is no taboo. Right. And yet there are so many areas you don't get to touch. Yeah. And yeah. so um, so my main focus, and I came to it in a sort of roundabout way, was I was studying addiction and I studied addiction because of my own history. And when I realized I wanted to understand what happened to me, I went back to school, the only thing I knew how to do well. And um, I kind of described my goal as trying to understand the pathway to addiction. Right. And in doing research, it dawned on me pretty quickly that there are deeply seated developmental, social, and um, environmental influences that play a role over and above the biological influence. I'm a, I actually am a pretty big believer in large biological components to the issue. Really? But that being said, it's, I think it's completely ridiculous to ignore the contextual um, framework within which addiction or mental health disorders in general develop. Um, before we get into the, the neuroscience too much, can we talk about your, the history that you referred to? Yeah, Your absolutely. personal history. Did, you had addiction issues? I did. Um, you know, I, I follow pretty stereotypical entry into drug use, I think. I, um, I was about 14. I just moved to the States. <laughs> I don't know if those things coincide yeah. or not, honestly. Yeah. 14 is, 13, 14 is right around the age most people try stuff out, beginning of high school. I also moved at that age. That's a traumatic time to leave your friends Terrible and time to move. try to right start. Right into high school, it was insane. It was yeah. so dumb. Yeah. But, I mean, none of us knew that at the time. But, yeah, I got introduced to a group of friends. I was Israeli, so went on this sleepaway camp with a bunch of other Israeli kids. And somebody pulled out a bottle of vodka. Uh, I'd never really drank. I mean, you know, I tasted wine or something like that at dinners, but never drank. I got pretty drunk that night and continued getting pretty drunk for the rest of the two nights at the sleepaway camp and discovered this internal um, social courage that I hadn't had before and was really excited about it. Mm. I wouldn't say it caused problems right off the bat, but I was drinking a couple of weekends every month from that point on. To excess? Yeah, to get drunk. I don't know if, you know, again, at 14, 15, I don't know if that was to excess, but... Was it the disinhibition that that you were getting into? Yeah, I was Mm. very... People tell me they didn't see me as socially awkward, but that's also true now. And, you know, around new people, I... I have social anxiety. Right. I don't think that's that uncommon. We'll talk about shame and stigma around these sorts of things later. But those have been driving forces for me in life, is how to avoid that discomfort. Mm. Um, found marijuana in my second high school in the U.S. With where a where were friends. you? Uh, this was in upstate New York. Where? Right outside of Rochester, New York. Brighton. Yeah, yeah I went um, to college in upstate New York and okay. lived there Which when I was school? in high school. Uh, Hobart College. Okay. Geneva. Yeah, yeah so... Not too far. I went to Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo after that. But mm-hmm. um, when I was in Rochester, we were sitting around. We, you know, we, all of us friends kind of hung out late at, into the night. It's high school, you know, sophomore and junior and senior year high school. Yeah. And we're sitting in a circle. Everybody smoked cigarettes. I didn't really smoke cigarettes. I hated them because of my mother smoking it my whole life. But they passed me around something that wasn't a cigarette. I didn't really ask questions. 
put it in my mouth, smoke. That was my first time smoking weed. Um, not quickly, but it gradually developed into a daily thing for me. And so then I was smoking and drinking, I'd say regularly. Um, definitely my senior year of high school, definitely heavily into my first year and second year of college to the point where it was causing, I mean, severe problems. I was mm. missing tests. I was, I was always pretty haphazard around work. So homework, studying for tests, things like that. But it was, it was devolving very quickly. And uh, especially had a bad breakup, caused severe depression, clinical depression. And, you know, all that together led to a maelstrom of new drug experimentation. I tried cocaine, I tried MDMA, I tried LSD and mushrooms and really anything other than opiates that I could get my hands on. And that was my sophomore year of college. Why not opiates? Um, honestly, nobody around me at the time had tried them. And mm. on one occasion, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine from high school and I were going to try them together. When, when I say them, it was heroin. When I was mm. back then, all this Roxy, Oxy stuff wasn't even existed. Right. It was kind of like you either did heroin or Vicodin or something. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't care less about pills. So... My friend and I were going to try it together. We were going to smoke it or snort it. We were not going to inject it. He ended up trying it about two weeks before me and shot it the first night. And, um, and I told him, you know what, I'm not interested. Mm. If, if there's something that can make you kind of break this pretty massive boundary we had put up within the first night, it scares the crap out of me. Mm. And that actually, you know, we'll talk into the story that me staying away from opiates remained all the way till the end of my drug using career. Mm. I did everything else, but I stayed away from opiates. It's interesting you had that you know like other things you could sort of slide and you know whatever see what happens but that you had that one line that I mean the main line was about oh, pun intended at all <laughs> was around yeah. injections yeah my father was a physician uh, okay and so I had this really very specific thing you use needles for medical care right they're not recreational right and so you know I was I became a really heavy meth user I never touched needles for meth I've never injected any drug ever hmm. um, probably a pretty good thing for me because just based on my personality but I ended up moving to California I started already selling drugs back home back in uh, in Rochester hmm. in Buffalo um, that got much much heavier here so I started selling ecstasy and that became cocaine and then methamphetamine and eventually the way I like to describe it is kind of like a 7-eleven for drugs I had everything all the time except for opiates. And what, what age are we talking? At this point, I'm 20, 21. All right. Um, and barely graduated UCLA. <clears throat> it was, um, I mean, I got out by the skin of my teeth. This is undergrad. Undergrad. Right. And as soon as I graduated, I came out here for music. And so I, I was making music. But honestly, my full-time profession was selling drugs. And mm. I did that for another three years. And Got arrested once in the middle, but then had a big bust, like a SWAT team, you know, knocking down my door in my Brentwood apartment um, in late 2001, early 2002. And that began a real transformation for me. And it's, you know, I'm glossing over some details and depending on who I talk to, I get, go into more of them. But, you know, I was to the point, you know, I owned guns and I carried them on me at all times and money and trips to Vegas and kind of the exactly what you see in the movies as your quintessential drug dealer. Mm. Um, that was my life. And the only, I think the only reason I even repeat the story nowadays is it's weird, but it gives credibility to the other stuff that comes after. Yeah. It's not 15 years later. So that person and I are not the same. Right. Um, but I think, I do think it's important because I think that 
you know, I've, I've said this for, for years, drugs are one of the only areas where people in positions of authority are proud of their total lack of experience in the area that they're administering, right? Sure. I mean, you, you can't be ambassador to China if you've never fucking been to China. It's different. Right? Difficult. It's diff I mean, I guess ambassador is a bad example because you can buy your way into that shit <laughs> these days, especially. But, um, you know, the idea that you're, you're an expert on a place you've never been or a language you don't speak or, right. you know, a genre or an area of science you've never done any research in, well, what the fuck do you know? Yeah, it definitely lends a... How about, how about this? It gives me an angle on it that sometimes juxtaposes kind of traditional academic thinking. Right. And I think in that way, we talked about this a little bit before, you know, Dr. Carl Hart, um, right. I completely understand where he's coming from. Sure. But, you know, the interesting thing is his experience around drugs is different than mine. Right. So he comes from the neighborhoods you would expect to see this stuff in. I don't. Yeah. Brentwood um, and South Miami are pretty you know, different upper middle places. middle class. My father was a very well-respected physician in, uh, in Manhattan. Not that you don't get drug addiction in Manhattan. You absolutely do. But, but coming at it from different, you know, so while Carl and, you know, Stanton Peel, we talk about some of these people, really focus on socioeconomic factors, those were not my factors, um, my proclivity to disinhibition and my proclivity to impulsivity and my leanings towards ADHD and rebelliousness without a doubt played a role. Mm -hmm. And then massive environmental influences, right? I mean, I already, just in what I told you by now, three different groups of friends got me into three different groups of drugs because right. I was the impulsive idiot who, I don't, not maybe not idiot, when everybody was starting to use a different drug, I figured out a way to not make it cost me money and so I could make money off of it. And it seems smart when you're 20 and you're bringing in $7,000 a month because of your ecstasy dealings, but it gets you into very precarious places in life. Um, what were we watching the other day? My wife and I were watching a TV show just last night and uh, I don't need to name the show, but whatever, these guys get held up, they play in a, they play in a you know, behind the scenes kind of poker game. They win a lot of money, and the guy wants to get off out the table, and I turn to my wife, and I said, it's a bad idea. Right, and they're not going to let him go. And she didn't yeah. get it, and I go, these people don't let money go. Yeah. They're doing that game to make money. And I lived with those people for three to five years of my life, so I get to understand some of my clients in, in very subtle ways mm. that have less to do, honestly, with the drugs and more right. to do with the way of life. It's, see, that, and that's a big part of what I was referring to, that there's a community around drug use, or a lot of communities, right? Absolutely. Carl Hart's community is very different from your community, but there are commonalities in them. Huge commonalities. A lot of power going on, a lot of social exclusion, a lot of ritual, a lot of inclusion, a lot of like, you know, these are my people. Well, you take an awkward kid. I mean, I consider myself an awkward kid. You know, you ask my mom and my friends, they didn't see it, but I felt internally very awkward, very... Mm -hmm inadequate and all this stuff growing up and then you put me in this position where when I walk into a room I hear my name spoken all over the place because people have been waiting for me for three hours they're that's, happy to see you yeah. that's all I wanted at the time yeah, and it's yeah. um, it's this weird social capital right plus if you're carrying a gun that's a whole other level of it is I mean demand. that was very fear based for me originally I got held up yeah my place got robbed um, and so it was a very, very fear-based sort of thing. There's nothing like being hogtied in your own private place with a gun to your head. Fuck, that as happened? People, you were people, home when it happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. As people just steal everything you own um, to make you go out and get a gun. And so 
Um, but if, you know, I'm the if you had guy. had a gun, would that have gone down differently? Um, when you think back on the way it happened? I mean, I'll tell you what, for months after that, the gun was out every time I let somebody in the door. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. they would have, you know. The they, second time, but not the first time. You don't, you know, again, honestly, for somebody in my situation, and again, that's why I tell the stories, you don't expect that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, what normal house do you live in where somebody right. comes to say hi and then pulls a gun and puts it up against your head yeah. and hog ties you? That stuff doesn't happen. Did you know the guy? Ten, I mean, very, you know, it, it had been a very recent introduction. Right. Which led to all, again, you know, this was, I talked to my, my clients and things like that about shows like Breaking Bad and, you know, the shows that got this stuff kind of right. You know, it was a string of highly impulsive decisions, one after the other, that can take you from what seems like a tor totally normal Friday night for a college kid yeah. to literally riding in a car with two guys with shotguns and you with a gun looking for the guy who robbed you. Those, yeah. those two stories seem completely disconnected, you know, going to a party on Friday night and the other. But give me three years and a lot of bad decisions along the way, and <laughs> yeah. it's one strength. Yeah. And so that, that was what I set out to do, is I set out to say, well, how did I get here? Mm. How do I get to help less people get this bad? Um, and I, you know, the initial approach was through academia. So, you know, got my master's, because I barely graduated with a 3.0 GPA from UCLA, so I had to go get a master's separately. Um, and then went back to UCLA to get my PhD. So you got busted, I and mean, this this pivot point yeah. was the SWAT team. Yeah, I had a motorcycle accident. Uh. And during the accident, they found a half a pound of coke in my jacket. Oh. And so then for the next three months, they uh, they hounded me and hounded me, and I wouldn't give them what they wanted until eventually SWAT team came to my house. They wanted who you they were wanted buying other names from. and yeah. all this other stuff yeah. and. You know, I, it's so funny to speak about it, but I consider myself a very honorable piece of shit. Um, so even in my drug dealing, you know, I mean, you think about it, you're selling, people are buying their souls, right? Like you just, you're gradually helping people find their demise. Hmm. Um, and I, I saw that years after I'd stopped. At the time, it just seems like I'm helping everybody live a better, happier life. But, hmm. um, you know, but I owned it and I wouldn't, you know, I... I went to rehab myself. I cleaned my own act, but and a lot of the other people that I know ended up still going to jail regardless. But um, I, I kind of wanted to stand on my own and pay what I needed to pay. I got a year in jail. I did that year. And, you know, when I got out, I couldn't get a job at the mall. Mm. Literally, I mean, in, in the, the most literal, I had nine felonies on my record. Right. Um, so I literally would go to get hired and they would bring me in for an interview do the background check and never call me back right so i was stuck and i'm a lucky guy right so here's where mm. where carl's stuff really comes in right my parents helped me pay rent right while i was trying to get into schools right you come from a poor neighborhood there is what no the school fuck are you gonna do and there's no parents helping you pay rent yeah no, and they yeah. i mean sometimes they can't right assuming it's even if they are in the picture they can't drop you know whatever it was my parents were dropping fifteen hundred dollars right. a month to help me yeah uh and then school started unfortunately i did well enough to get scholarships and then when you get a phd for people who are listening and don't know this the re one of the main reasons to get a phd instead of a lot of other degrees is it's typically paid for if you know what to do mm. so i made a little money uh earning my phd but i worked my butt off and I was getting an addiction from every angle that I could. 
And honestly, at the time, the idea of shame and stigma hadn't even entered the picture. I was so laser focused on the biology, the neuroscience, the existing knowledge, the disease model. Um, you know, this is 2000, 2002. Right. So the things that were making it then, um, I was laser focused on those. It really wasn't until I start, I had enough time out of the PhD and started treating people and started exploring my own progress that I really saw a little bit more of the 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 sort of side effects, the impacts that are kind of around the the edges of drug addiction and not as directly correlated to what happens when you put cocaine in your nose. Right. Because that's what we mostly focus on studying. Right. Is when you put cocaine in your nose, what happens? And how is that related to addiction? Yeah, this sort of mechanistic approach to to addiction. Yeah, I, I've, I've never bought it, personally. No? No. I mean, I can see... First of all, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about drugs for a long time. I'm probably 20 or 30 years older than you. I'm 40. Oh, all right. I'm 15 years older than you. Okay. Um, uh, but the first time I took mushrooms, which was Halloween night, 1980, my freshman year in college. It's a good night for mushrooms. <laughs> it was a good night. <laughs> I spent most of the night in a graveyard, too. Wow. Um, that experience was so profoundly positive for me that I refused to ever like just be quiet when people were bad mouthing drugs, okay. drugs in general, sure. because talking about drugs is like talking about Africans, like, you know, South Africans or Moroccans or, or Egyptians or yeah, exactly. It's sure. like, what are you talking about? Sure. They're totally different experiences. Some, this is the same problem, by the way, that I have with people like in AA or, or groups like that who just say, well, you have to figure out how to live your life without any, anything that's mind altering. And I just call right. bullshit. Like, well, like what sleeping or can, can I sleep? Movies, can I jerk off? Book? Can right. I go for a run? Exactly. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're, we're made of drugs, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that's, I, I take issue with that. Yeah. Broadly, even when you leave the recreational drug use discussion, um, we were talking about that on the way here. And if I can, I, mean, I think we'll get to this at some point. I want, I want to get to it right now. We're, this is tangentially point. speaking, man. I know. Right? Totally. <laughs> I love worry. it. That's how I, I should, this is how I have most of my conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just sick and tired of this false fake notion that substances are okay. As long as we've put them in a certain category and if they are in that category, you're expected to use them unless you use them inappropriately. And then you're a different human. And then you get put in that other box, the right. attic box. You're sick. And yeah. once you're in that attic box, yeah. you're stuck there forever. You can't leave. Right. Because the problem is we're constantly changing what drugs are allowed and what are not allowed. Yeah. Plus, anybody who understands anything about drugs notice, knows that it's not only about the chemical compound, it's the way you administer it and the dose and the context, right? right. The, right. the set, the setting, all those things, they all matter. And so, you know, I now run a treatment center and I'm sick and tired of the fact that most of the fights I have are with people are about, should everybody who's ever used drugs inappropriately be abstinent for the rest of their lives or not? Because it's such a moot fucking point. I don't even understand why we're fighting about it. Most people are not willing to go that route. So mm. it's a little bit like saying to people, you know, uh, here's a medicine. It'll cure your cancer. 
Now, you're never going to take it. 90% of you are never going to want to take it, either because it tastes so bad that it's going to make you throw up for the rest of whatever it is. The medicine itself is so difficult to digest that only a sliver of you will accept it. But yet, the entire fight we're going to have is about whether that medicine is appropriate or not. Mm. We're missing the fucking point. If yeah. 90% of people are not willing to engage in the sort of treatment industry that we've created, right. the problem is not the treatment. and the, the problem is not which treatments are we applying. Right. It's the fact that right. people aren't coming to take it. Well, let, let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, you know, even if this total abstinence uh, approach to, to drugs were equivalent to curing cancer, which I don't, I don't think. Yeah, okay. It's, it's nowhere near close. You're right. But I'm saying even, yes, even if it were. But even if it were, isn't, isn't, we're still missing the conversation about what causes cancer. Sure. Which is, I think, more important than like arguing over does this cure it or does that cure? Nothing really cures it. We already know that. Yeah. So what's causing it? What's and this seems to be what you're getting into with the shame and the the you know. Yeah. So I think you know an alternative. The way we look at it is, there are biological, environmental, and experiential causes, and the experiential is everything from early life trauma right. to so that's um, Gabor Mate's kind of. 100 yeah. percent um, and by and environment is more of like you know carl's stuff mm. uh and Stanton's poverty stuff. And bruce alexander right bruce I, mean, Alex- I was gonna ask if you were familiar with him sure it's Rap funny Park. we had an exchange when i was in grad school and he stopped responding to me when i tried to bring anything neuroscience related up he just completely shut me down oh really um yeah and i don't to be honest i mean those guys are all great i don't understand why we're in this place where it has to be an either or explanation right you know my wife and I, my wife and I took a neuroscience class together at UCLA, and we had this joke every single time somebody would present two um, opposite theories relating to some effect. We would kind of lean into each other and say, hey, guess what? It's both. Yeah. And it always turns out to be both. Yeah. So why are we talking about is it biology or is it the environment or is it socioeconomic right. factor or is it early life trauma? Obviously, it's all. Right. That doesn't mean it's the same mix for everybody. Right. So what we do is we do some genetics testing. Does, is that perfect and does it give me the exact score? No, absolutely not. But there are, you know, in the realm of about 10 to 12 genetic markers that we know are associated with different levels and different aspects of drug use. Right. Environment is obviously massively important. I don't wonder once why in um, Mexican neighborhoods around here, methamphetamine and, uh, and THC and weed are kind of the big drugs and now, you know, whereas in most black communities, especially if you look at the 80s and 90s, it was crack cocaine because that's what was available around. We can have the fight about who brought what in where, but what's around is what you're going to end up using. Mm. But that and biology are not the same thing. Mm. So they might intersect, they might not. And then you've got trauma, right? And we know, by the way, socioeconomic factors by themselves can produce trauma. But if you sure. lived in a war-torn region or around gangs or you got beat up or sexually molested or psychologically abused growing up, there's a much greater chance that you will engage in risky behavior. Now, across the board, risky behavior, risky sexual behavior, risky Mm. physical behavior, and drug and alcohol use, right? So you put high-risk development and trauma with a high-risk environment and high-risk biology, and you probably end up getting those people that we all refer to, not us maybe, but the people out there refer to as addicts and alcoholics. Right. The problem is we've gone to this weird place in our society where anybody who even tangentially is related to those groups just gets tossed in with them. You know, I 
I can't tell you how upset I get when I hear about 15 and 16 and 18 year olds are becoming diagnosed as alcoholics and addicts. It's insane. Mm. Um, Why is it insane? Because 18 to 25 year olds specifically, let's say, that's the age range within which where everybody uses right. more substances than at any other point in life. Right. Diagnosing somebody at that point as an alcoholic or an addict is like diagnosing a college student as being a, a nerd because they're going to a lot of classes and studying a lot of material. It's just, <laughs> right, it's right. just what happens it's in that age It's typical behavior for that age group. It's norm. Right, right. It's actually the norm, right? I mean, yeah. something like 90% of college students consume alcohol. Compare yeah. that to 60% of the general population. Hmm. 40 to 50% of college students are heavy drinkers right. compared to 7% of the population. That means that the vast majority of college students age out of this kind of drinking. But if they get into trouble in college, they get mm. tossed into this alcoholic right. place. Right. And that that's when my whole shame, stigma problem comes in is, you put this label on somebody's forehead, you've now impacted how they see themselves for the rest of their lives. Right. And I'm not making this up, this is not something I conjured up, there's a lot of research. Sure. Experimenter bias, stereotype threat, the Pygmalion effect. Right. Um, there are many, many names for a pretty basic psychological finding, people call it, you know, the um, self-fulfilling prophecy, but it works both ways. The way I treat you will end up affecting the way you believe um, your own self-efficacy and right. abilities will drive you. And if we don't pay really careful attention to that, we can end up falling into pitfalls, like thinking that uh, black students are dumber than white students. Right. And have many, many books from developmental psychologists and and uh, you know, um, evolutionary psychologists explaining why that is true when many studies have shown us it's not. It's not it's true. It's a matter right. of expectation. Right. And it's dangerous. Yeah, even humans. the whole like women are, are not as good at math. It's the same kind of thing. You know, sure. you set up the expectation and and it uh, you can find evidence for it, but that's because the, you've set up the expectation. So do you think then the idea that are there substances I'm getting back to my rant earlier like to me it's really annoying when people talk about drugs because there's just the, the it doesn't mean anything drugs drugs what do you mean by drugs sure. you know like until if we're not even defining terms you can't talk about mushrooms and cocaine in the same sentence they're totally different they appeal to totally different types of people sure. the experience they produce are different you know, you can't take mushrooms every day. Sure. First of all, you won't feel anything. Yeah, your tolerance will build up really quick. Yeah, right. But also imagine, like, what if people were using cocaine in their original coca leaf form? We'd be having an entirely different discussion about cocaine. Yeah. It's not all that different from caffeine at that point. You know what? I interviewed Wade Davis recently. Do you know him? I don't. He's an ethnobotanist. Okay. He's a he's super successful guy. He's probably published 15 books and... Um, you know, he's exploring residents at National Geographic. Several of his books have been made into movies. Mm. You definitely know the guy. He's given yeah, yeah. five TED Talks. He's like this super well-known guy. And uh, he was talking about a, a time in his career where he was very prolific. And he said, you know, people always ask me how I wrote so many books. Coca leaves. They're great. They're yeah. fantastic. It, whoever figures out how to get these things, you know, market them into North America is going to make a fortune because especially for writers and academics, they're fantastic. They make you feel comfortable, focused on the computer screen. You're in your head. You've got the narrative flow working. It's sure. great for a writer. Sure. 
Look, and they're not unhealthy. You know, the beauty, the beauty of all this stuff is, again, so we get to the drug and how it interacts with your specific biology and then yeah. the dose and the delivery method. They're all important. And so just right. like you're saying, not only can you not talk about drugs in general because they're all different, but even anytime you discuss a specific drug, right. how you do it, right. how you deliver it is <clears throat> monumentally important to the conversation. And how it fits into your cultural context. But we don't live in that world, right? Yeah. So you were asking about, um, about this earlier, you know, and, and when did that concept of kind of shame and all that enter into my life? I think one of the first places I became aware of it was at an advisor. We were co-writing a paper together and, um, and I had mentioned some of my personal past and I hadn't up to that point to anybody. Mm. Um, and he literally kind of looked at me and said, I don't want to hear about that. And you should not tell anybody, anybody about that anymore. And it was the first time that I felt that jolt of, oh, what, maybe I should be ashamed of the thing that happened in the past because I already went through the shame period, kind of getting out of jail, trying to figure out what to do. And now mm. I felt like I was, I was on this righteous path or whatever. Right. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that not everybody was going to feel the same way about it. So, you know, for instance, at this point, just FYI, I'm 15 years clean of meth, but I'm not sober, mm. uh, which freaks a lot of people out. They don't know what to do about it, um, especially a lot of people in the industry. So, you know, people tell me on a regular basis that some people make fun of me outside and other people think that, you know, what I'm doing is great. But that's a you have to come to terms at some point with the way you're comfortable living your life. And I think that's what you're saying even about the drugs is... Um, if you find something like mushrooms to be incredibly useful in your life, and right, I mean, hallucinogens like that are a source of so much insight um, and have for a long time in shamanistic rituals right. and things like that, but right. such a source of spiritual growth, etc., that writing them offhand is just silly. Right. Um, but I'm at this place now in my life where I figure you have transparency helps in the way that by having these conversations, yeah, I've been through my history and people have a specific expectation of what that means. And that is I'm either going to end up in prison, uh, dead or sober for the rest of my life. That's sort of what they see when they see somebody from my history. And as of this moment, those are not my stories. And the well, you I'm, are going to end up dead. Got yeah, some bad news for you. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you, man. Yes, yeah, yeah, so hopefully I've got a while. But you're right. Yeah, yes, yeah. I will absolutely end up dead. We're all um, going to end up dead. Hopefully not for meth use. Yeah. Or any other kind of exacerbated uh, drug use. But, yeah. um, you know, it's there are so many ways. So, you know, there's this word. And it's kind of a bastardized word now, this recovery word, right? Mm. Um, the only thing I'm recovering from is a pretty shitty life before. Right. I was making terrible choices. It's funny. I have a talk. I'm gonna. I don't know when this comes out, but I'm gonna. I'm giving a talk in uh, in about eight days, and I think I'm literally going to open it up with a line along the lines of, "I'm great at making mistakes," right? I've seen it in my life, and so now my recovery is actually more about being transparent, so that the choices I'm making are a little more obvious to everybody. Mm. And if I start straying, it's a little more obvious that I've strayed than before where I was really good at hiding it's a good point. You sort of crowdsource your own life trajectory that yeah. way by being honest. Whereas yeah. before I was, I always thought, no, I'm, I'm the best judge. I'll, I'll know what's right and what's wrong. I wonder if that's a common uh, thread among problem uh, drug use is, is that sense of like, yeah, I'm going to keep my decisions to myself. I don't need to really talk about this with anyone as opposed to people who are more open and 
talk those things, you know, shame. share. Yeah, there's shame. your shame, right? So that's exactly. why, right? The reason people don't share, and I talk about this whenever I give mm. presentations, people don't lie because they want to lie. That's bullshit. Whenever people tell me that addicts are liars, no, they're not liars. You're setting up a situation where they don't feel comfortable telling the truth. Mm. You know, my hardest using clients, um, injection, drug users, etc. their friends know they're using. And many of their friends know they're injecting. But they, the friends that they know won't judge them. Mm-hmm. So if we start an interaction with somebody with this caveat, hey, I'm really, I'm all in for you. I really, really want to help you. But just if you say these 14 things to me, I'm going to think you're a piece of shit and, mm-hmm. and write you off as a human. Like what your professor did with you. They're obviously, they're going to keep that aside unless they've yeah. somehow managed to develop so much self-efficacy by the point in that conversation they're going to say well that's your problem not my problem right i'm just i'm going to be honest with you about what's going on with me and if you want to write me off for that then that's okay right and that's um i feel like that's a bridge that most people in recovery cross at some point Hmm. a point at which it's no longer about looking good but rather about really connecting to how are these decisions sitting with me And are they leading me towards the path that I want to have in my life? Yeah.
think, uh, I guess this question is, is two facets to it. Do you think that there are people for whom the biological uh, factors are so, so strong that they have a very strong propensity toward addictive behavior? Absolutely. Okay. And then are there substances that have addictive qualities that are so strong that even people who don't have a propensity will get sucked into them if they try them. Like I always used to hear, try crack once, you'll be addicted for life. Try this once, you'll be, you know, whatever. Yeah, so I don't... I, I never tried crack, but... I did. Just because I, I never it. got offered any... Honestly, I did, and I hate it. I'm not even a cocaine fan. So yeah. I've been clean for 15 years. I've tried coke once in those 15 years. And wh why didn't coke it. appeal to you? You know, I sold it. I literally yeah. sold it. So I would only try... This is so funny to talk about. When we get the really, really pure, like Bolivian... Right. Pearl, it, it doesn't even look white. It just yeah, it's looks yellowish. Like it's, kind like, of, uh, yeah. well, it's like pinkish. It almost look, look, literally looks like a crushed chunk of pearl. Of it. Yep. Yeah. Um, then I would do a little bit. But I'm not a big fan of any drug I have to do again every 20 to 30 minutes to mm. re-up my feeling. I was just never a fan of that. And so I Did you like off. the feeling itself? I like the feeling, yeah. But then one of, my, one of the guys who sold for me really liked crack. And he would cook it up himself so they, you know... They don't refer to it as crack. They refer free to it as freebase. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, it's white bands you get, crack. Yeah, I got to yeah. get the lingo right. And yeah. um, I tried it once, and I felt a subtle rush for 20, 30 seconds, and then I was depressed for two hours. Remember, I looked back at him and said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my yeah. life. Yeah. I've been depressed for almost eight times longer than I felt high. What the fuck yeah. is the use the of The ratio is all wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you, guys, you guys are misunderstanding how I want to get high. Yeah. So I never did it again. And yeah. It was never really a big deal for me. But to answer your question, therefore, it's not so much about the drugs being overly addictive. There's something about the match. Mm, of the personality and the feeling. The personality, yeah. biology, and you know what I used to call it as a dealer? It was, uh, in, you keep experimenting until you find the thing that flips your switch. Right. And once you find that thing, watch out. Right. Because whether it's just a biological need, so like for instance, my ADHD fits very well with stimulants. Right, like because, Adderall or something. I mean, or meth. I mean, yeah. I was just... Meth is Adderall, right? Meth is essentially like a, a hyper-concentrated version of Adderall, yeah. sure. And so I would stay up literally for three to five days at a time, using constantly. Um, and I might have been pacing, but it wasn't like I was shaking and edgy or anything. And at two o'clock in the morning, when everybody else would be asleep, I'd be working on my music. And it fit me. I totally understand why. When I went to grad school, I remember I was joking with my dad, and I said, Dad, you know, I totally get why I like meth. I have a hard time keeping up with all these readings, and if I had another three to four or five hours a night of being able to do this stuff, I wasn't going to go back to it, uh, but I did get diagnosed with ADHD, and I have stimulant medication mm. that I take very rarely because I don't mm. actually like the feeling of it. Mm. But when you find that combo, it can be dangerous. Now, I will say this. I have met, it's not most of my heroin or opiate um, addict clients, but I have found people who through repeated heavy dose use for whatever reason have become so physiologically dependent that the process of disentangling themselves from opiates is difficult. Even if there was no, in the early, on the front end part, um, a big psychological or um, socioeconomic reason for them seeking the drug. Literally people who had cancer and got put on high doses or, or had chronic, um, you know, chronic pain of some sort. So in that sense, I would say opiates are somewhat unique in that 
long-term enough use can create this very, very strong physiological dependence mm. that people then don't know what to do about. Um, I've never had it, but it, having seen many people go through it, it looks really jarring because you think of yourself as a quote-unquote normal person and then you start going through this process that you've always heard is only there for junkies. And here, again, is my language. You're talking about withdrawal. Stigma. Yeah, terrible right. withdrawals. Right. And so you feel and look like a junkie. And in our world, and I'm using that term purposefully, the, the junkie term, that means a lot of things. And once you start thinking yourself of yourself in that way, it is really hard to disentangle what that means. Um, one of my friends was saying that she wants to do a counter talk to my relabeling the shame uh, that we have talk, saying that there's a positive value to labels. But what she misses when she tells me these stories is she's talking about completely rewriting the meaning of what the labels mean. Mm. I'm talking about the exact same thing. Mm. Um, a drug addict doesn't mean anything by itself either. Right. We have to get away from this notion that we know what a drug addict is. Um, you know, we define it by the DSM and all, all these criteria, but there's 11 criteria and somebody with four, with a cluster of four of them versus a different cluster of four, they represent and they present themselves completely differently. And so we've gotten too comfortable thinking that we understand what, what these people are going through. And, and that's again, even from my standpoint, I understand very well my own experience. And so what I do know is I know what it's like to feel like you lost control when you didn't think that was possible. Mm -hmm. When you're 19, 20 years old, you think you're in control of everything. That's the thing I get to share with my clients is I understand how out of control you feel right now, even if you can't admit that to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I really need to respect their experience and try to help them understand what mix of biology, environment, and early life experience or you know, experiential sort of psychology um, they're struggling with and kind of solve their puzzle. Do the people who come to your clinic come there voluntarily? More people come voluntarily than I expected. Um, but you get people, the cops send them or the judge or... Yeah, I'd say probably about 40% of people come, judge, families made them come or something mm. along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I, my first class in graduate school was an addiction class. Oh, really? First you know, quarter or whatever. And uh, I remember that I, I went into it thinking, you know, because I had I had done my, a lot of research myself about drugs over the years. I studied shamanism and, yep. you know, altered states for healing and all this kind of stuff. And because of my experience with hallucinogens mainly. And, you know, I smoked weed. I've done heroin. I've done, you know, I traveled all over the world for 15 years with a backpack. And wherever I was... If someone offered me the local experience, whether it was food or sex or drugs, I would probably go for it. And um, so I come into it with a very sort of non-judgmental non attitude toward drugs. So I thought, that, okay, this professor is just going to be laying out the you know standard bullshit, and I'm going to argue, and this is going to be horrible for both of us, you know. Yeah. And uh, but the first thing he said was. Uh, raise your hand. There were like 30 students. He said, raise your hand if you were, uh, if you would consider your, f oh, if you were raised by one or both parents who were alcoholics or addicted to drugs of some sort. Half the students raised yeah. their hands. And he said, okay, the rest of you, 
Raise your hand if you would consider that your family was extremely dysfunctional. And at that point, everyone in the room had their hand up except me. And he said, okay, see, now I want you to understand people who get into psychology often do so because they've got their own issues. Sure. And you've got to work out those issues before you sit down across the table from mm. someone else and start telling them about their issues. Because otherwise you're just projecting your shit onto them and you don't yeah. know what's going on. Totally. So that made me think, like, all right, this guy, I like this guy. Yeah, yeah. And then he, I don't know if it was the same day, but at some point he was talking about how if you get into this, this line of psychology, a lot of the people who come to you are coming unwillingly because their wife or husband said, you either get therapy or we're done, or the boss is going to fire you because, you know, whatever, or the cops or the judge, whatever. And they'll come with all this resistance and anger and aggression toward you. And if you engage with that, you're done. You, you yeah. lose them. I agree. And so you need to find a way to stay centered and allow them to express that energy and sort of churn it in a way that can be nurturing and helpful for them. And I raised my hand, I said, you know, that sounds a lot like Aikido. And he said, yeah, stay after class. I, I want to talk to you about that. So at the end of the class, I went up to him and he said, listen, I, I couldn't say this in front of everybody, but um, I learned more about psychology by studying Aikido than I ever learned at Harvard or Yale or wherever uh -huh. he went. He said, if you want to go into clinical psychology, I would strongly suggest you study Aikido. Interesting. I yeah. always compare it to Judo, but I, maybe Aikido is what I need to look into more. Well, Aikido is beautiful. I mean, Judo is, is interesting, but Judo has uh, an aggression to it that Aikido doesn't have. Aikido, okay. my understanding of Aikido, which I did study for a while with his teacher, actually, oh, cool. which was, I, I mean, I'll continue the story. So he... Uh, you know, he said that, and I was like, look, man, I, you know, I'm borrowing money to do grad school. I was working at a nonprofit in San yeah. Francisco. It's like, come on, I can't, I can't be adding to my... And he's like, well, look, here's my teacher's name. His name was Richard Moon. Go to his class. First class is always free, and see what he says. So I went, and I did the class, and afterwards I went up to Richard Moon, and, uh, and he said, so are you going to come back? Did you like this? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I can't afford it, blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay, here's, here's the way it works. These classes cost 15 bucks per class. Keep track of how many classes you do. And someday, send me a check. Wow. And if I'm not around or you can't find me or I die, take that money and, and help somebody with it. That's amazing. Right. And what I learned later is that's Aikido. Right. It's Aikido. It, it formed because it was how to fight against someone who's got a sword when you don't. So you never block them because they're coming down on you with a sword. You don't put your arm up like it's in karate. Re re restructuring motion. Like, right? Exactly. Motion. You move out of the way. Let them go where they need to go. Like you were saying, respect to the experience so of your clients. This out. So here's here's how I got over all that. And here's the bullshit that I fight with. On a regular basis, I mean, Facebook rants and all this other stuff. An alternative is we don't dictate to people that they have to quit. Right. So we let them make the front choice. We say, you can come in to stop, you can come in to reduce, you can come in to moderate now. Mm. Now, people come in with their initial goals. That doesn't mean that's the goals that they're going to leave with. But what I learned early on, and I did some of this research in my postdoc, is 
now uh, we were talking about this on the ride over here, something like 40 to 50% of people say that the reason they don't go into treatment because they're not ready to quit. Well, who the fuck said that treatment has to make you quit? In what other realm of medicine have we decided that if you want help with something, you have to quit everything else? Like, diabetics are not made to no longer ever touch sugar or a doctor won't see them. Mm. Of course, they need to reduce and they need to monitor and all that other stuff. But we've taken off the notion that in order to get help for drug and alcohol problems or compulsive habits, you have to completely be ready to quit them. Mm. Now, in full disclosure, about 50% of the people that come to us to learn how to moderate decide to quit. But that's through a journey that they go through without me ever having to tell them. So it's kind of what you're talking about in terms of Aikido. If you want to learn how to moderate, let me try to help you teach how to moderate. You'll figure out if you can do it or not. I, I'm not delusional enough to think that I have the power to control people. Mm. And that is the problem for me with so much of what ends up happening around addiction treatment, especially, but mental health treatment maybe in more generally, is we've come from this place where we've decided what the standard is, right? So here's what a normal person is like. Mm. And we all have an image of that. And by the way, all our images are probably different. <laughs> but we all have this image of right. what a normal person in life right. is like. And then when we get into a therapeutic relationship with somebody, we try to make them into this normal person. What if that's not their fucking normal? Yeah. You know, what? It, we might actually make them sicker by trying to bend them into right. the shape that they do not naturally conform to. And so... Yeah. There's an entire industry, 95% of the industry in the country, more, it's probably more like 99% of the addiction treatment in this country, essentially mandates complete abstinence. Right. And there's study after study that shows you that the self-report data collection we do about outcomes, it's essentially meaningless, you know, with 60 to 90 some percent error rates, um, because people are ashamed. They just paid you a bunch of money and went to treatment for three months. They're not going to tell you they're using again over the phone three months later. So mm. they'll lie to you. Mm. Why don't we just take off that all, all of that off the table and just say, look, you obviously want help. You wouldn't walk into a treatment center if you didn't want help. And I just turn it around on the client. I say, what do you want help with? And you know what? I don't encounter resistance. When I encounter resistance is inevitably when there are outside forces that dictate what needs to happen in treatment. And sometimes I fully understand those forces. I've got a kid right now. His parents are scared. He's a heroin addict. And obviously they are scared that the next time he shoots up, he might die. I 100% get that. So I can't dictate to the parents to not be afraid of their kid dying. Sure. And I can't guarantee them that their kid won't die. Um, but I also know that there's nothing I can do to make sure that he won't. Right? There's short of locking him up in a box where right. he has no access to the drugs. And so... For me, it's an art of how do you create a human connection with somebody and trust and help build their self-efficacy. You're asking about all the underlying things. Again, early life trauma, recent developments in terms of self-efficacy and shame, you know, um, feeling like you're not playing the role in life that you should be playing, feeling inadequate, all those things, um, they're important. Yeah. Humans are social animals and we want to fit in and we want to feel in control, and we want to we want to feel like um, we belong. Right? All those things are really important to us. And so, knowing how to do that, Johan Hari's talk, you know, about uh, the opposite of um, addicted is not sober; it's connection. Mm. I love the concept. It's just not that simple. Mm. It's not like walking up to somebody who's addicted and giving them a hug is enough, right? Because it has to be a believed connection. The connection has to be 
pervasive and it has right. to permeate their life. Uh, and but, that means, it, but it is an expression of what you and I were saying earlier about making keeping your decisions private. Sure. If you feel the people around you love you and support you and aren't going to judge you, you're more likely to be open and transparent about 100%. your plans and your. Which is where the social aspect, like the Stanton Peel, Bruce Alexander, right. Carl Hart thing, comes in is right. we have, without a doubt, especially since the Reagan Nixon days, right. Have, say no. have told people drug users are bad people. Yeah. That's, a, that's the message, period. And so if I'm a bad person, I'm not exactly going to feel at ease um, talking to other people about just how bad I am. And then everybody yeah. wonders why they isolate. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now we're saying they're sick people, which is supposed to be better. <laughs> Sort of, but they're bad sick people, right? Uh, because, yeah. again, I do this with all of our clients. Yes, the disease model is, is uh, one of the pervasive models now here. Mm. But it's not, like, it's not like people think about it like cancer. It's not like people think about it like diabetes. It's mm. a self-inflicted disease, mm. right? So people still look at it like, Maybe it's like you got yourself cancer. sick. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like lung cancer for smokers, yeah. right? Um, and so when you ask about biological predisposition... If people really understood what that means, it's not about taking responsibility away from the person. It's understanding their machine is how I talk to clients about it. You've got to understand what you come to the table with, and then you've got to develop a life plan around that. Uh, but we don't have comfortable conversations around it. You know, we're so, again, it's a puritanical underbelly of, of what we do here. Yeah. So we've got this normal standard, and almost nobody's living by it. Well, and then that that also leads to the question of, you know, that normal standard is a reflection of social values, right? Absolutely. From my perspective, we live in an extraordinarily pathological society. We're destroying the planet. We're bombing nine different countries at any given moment. We're spending half our budget on arms. And, you know, it's just We're insane. We're giving a $600 billion tax cut to the wealthy while sure. eliminating well, the vast majority off. of Medicaid. Yeah, um, meals patients. on wheels for, you know, people who, who can't that? move. And Like, yeah, absolutely lack of compassion and, and, and intelligence. Anyway, my point is, if you live in a sick society, a normal person is sick. Yeah, because that's the person who's congruent with the currents of that society. Sure. So, I mean, do you? My feeling is is that some of the what we're calling addicts, I don't know. To me, a lot of them are just people who've said, "I can't live this way." They're, they've rejected the society that they're in, right? And they're like, "Okay, I'm a junkie," or. You know, I'm a, I'm a loser or I'm a whatever it is, but I'm not going to participate in this. It's yeah. a form of almost a form of political rebellion. That's a great point. Um, you know, my wife and I, we started doing couples work for a lot of couples because um, we realized similar things were happening in coupleships, mm. in people's relationships, where there was this standard notion of what being a couple means. Right. And yet it's fastly devolving, right? The notion that you know, you go back to the 40s and 50s and 30s and the idea that, you know, you wed, you never get divorced no matter what. And so it's not like people were working on creating better relationships. They just stayed in terrible relationships because right. that's what you did. Right. And then that fell apart and people said, well, if it's not a good relationship, then leave it. And we've ended in this weird place where 
marriage is kind of like this trading card. Like right. sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. Throw toss away. it away, whatever. Yeah. Which I think is still wrong. Not wrong. It still it still um, leaves something, uh, you know, that, that can be improved there. And so, what we work with a lot of couples on is how do you find your middle ground? How do you find not what is normal for everybody else, but what is normal for you and your partner? And for me, a lot of that work, and I think this does get back to my drug use and, and the shame and all that kind of stuff, is I've had to completely alter the messaging of what it means to be a man in this society. And it's uh, it's a very convoluted process. I'm probably still going through it to some extent. But, you know, I grew up in the age where, you know, you look at the Playboy magazine and you see the guys on TV and the James Bond and all that stuff. And those are the role models. Um and forget for a split second that they're completely unrealistic role models, right? Because if everybody actually lived like Hugh Hefner, there would be no society. I mean, and also Hugh Hefner. <laughs> no, I get it. I mean, I get all the I get all the fucked up shit about Hugh it. Hugh Hefner's sad at this, you know. Well, he's been sad for he's twenty been years probably. Like, but yeah, 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 and yeah. everything around it. But it's yeah. but that doesn't change the fact that that's the messaging, right? Right. The messaging is look at what you get to get. Right. You drive the Ferrari, you have right. the 40 hot blondes that live with you in the mansion. Right. Forget right. everything that goes Talk along Talk about with addictions. It. Well, and then, but in the, ni- in the early 2000s, Mad Men came out the show, hmm. and we repurposed the 50s man still as the guy we're all supposed to be. And then you take a really deep look at it. Yeah, he was good looking and wore nice suits, but constantly cheated on his wife. Yeah. Was drinking himself to death because he hated life and was left alone by himself at the end, right? So even though we can all objectively see that there's something wrong with that model, it's still the model. It's still the template. Mm. And so I do a lot of work both with my clients in both uh, in the drug world and, and now in these coupleships on reformulating normal right like what is normal and how do you make normal your version of it right and and going more based on what does it actually feel like to live in that role rather than does it conform to what other people told you right because i still believe to some extent biology environment and early life experience play a role in what will end up being your most effective version of yourself regardless of what people around you are telling you um you know, shooting for these markers, shooting for the Bentley in the house and all that kind of stuff. It seems like the simple answer. But I've now worked with, I can now say I've worked with some of the world's richest human beings. And one thing it proved to me for sure is having three yachts and 12 Bentleys and a full staff that hands you the phone whenever you have a phone call and flies you wherever you want is in no way, shape, or form a guarantee of happiness. Right. And if that's not, if getting $8 billion in your bank account is not a guarantee of, of um, happiness, then money is not the right thing to go after. Right. And especially in the U.S., we live in a society, I mean, look at who we just elected. We live in a society where, in the end, money is king. And even the drugs that we're discussing all the time, where society splits is pharmaceutical sanctioned drug use versus um you know illicit and uh and illegal drugs and yeah. you know we'll pay money to stop people from using illicit drugs but we'll pay money to make people use the, the sanctioned <laughs> drugs exactly so it's um yeah. it's convoluted and it's hard for a lot of people to find their own middle road i see myself more as a guide helping people find what their true places in that schema yeah versus having an answer myself of what is the truth or what right. is the normal? So where where does meaning fit into all this? 
Because in as much as, as I was arguing earlier that I think some drug use is a rejection of uh, uh, empty sort of social world, I feel like there's also meaning in drug use. You know, there's, there's ritual. There are replications of ancient behavioral patterns in mm. drug use. I mean, I can remember when I was in college, like you'd get an ounce of weed, you get your double album and open it up and because you had to get the seeds out. These were back in the, this yeah. back in the early 80s. And uh, there was that ritual, clean the weed, pack the bong, passing it around. You know, uh, in, in Europe, I, my friends there smoke um, with tobacco mixed into the hash or the, or the weed or whatever. And I hate tobacco. It makes me feel nauseated. It makes me feel dizzy. It's horrible. But you know what? I always smoke joints with tobacco now. Yeah. Because you pass it around. It's it's casual. I come back to America. Everyone's like, hit it and you know, don't bogart that joint. Pass it. It's all stressful and you can't like (laughs) have your conversation. It's almost like I don't give a shit about the weed. It's the experience of passing a burning thing around the circle. You know. Sure. And by the way, we do that primarily around substances. If you think about it. Yeah. Sitting around the coffee shop, what is that? Yeah. Right? It's yeah. Pat, it's like sitting with your substance. Right. And, you know, people look at caffeine as innocuous. But like I said, if you take cocaine at its coca leaf level, not right. all that different than caffeine. And, and better for The thing is, coca leaves are nutritious. Right. They're There's, good for your teeth. They're good yeah. for your digestion. There's absolutely no downside. Yeah. So, so I think Crazy. you're right. There is a lot of meaning in the, in the ritualistic socialization. And by the way... That is why some of the people who don't feel like they fit into the standard culture, yeah. they find their subculture. Right. They find the group. That's how I found my alcohol and marijuana people when I was mm. in high school. I felt socially awkward. And then I found a group of people right. that accepted me. Um, it would be nice if there was a way to allow for the effect of the drug without the marginalization. Um, mm. And I don't honestly, again, I don't know what that looks like because... Our society is developed in such a um, substance exclusive, I'll call it, sort of manner that alcohol is totally fine. Just don't have it within these hours. Don't have any while you're working. Um, Don't have too much. You can leave work right at work. You can leave work and go to the bar downstairs and get sloshy drunk until 8 p.m. when happy hour is done. But then don't come home drunk. Yeah. Right. Don't have a hard time walking. Like, it's the unless you're in Japan, <laughs> where that's expected. You're supposed to get totally shit faced with your coworkers. Okay. You know there that you if you don't, then you're you're not cool. See, so the norms it's, are so different, right? So yeah. My Chinese, I have executives that do a lot of work in China, and they tell me I can't close deals without alcohol in you China. Got, you got to get drunk so, to show that you can be trusted. Yep. Yeah. So they can hire proxy drinkers for part of the drinking, but they have <laughs> really? to have some of the drunk. <laughs> proxy drinker. Absolutely. Oh, that's a great job. Yeah. Right, right. What do you do what for do you a living? Flying some thing. Irish guys. <laughs> so, you know, all these things really matter. And I think that the problem, oh, especially in the U.S., we are so about simplicity. Yeah. It's almost the same as like my friend who was arguing with me that she wants to argue the opposite point of Right. Labels are bad. Yeah. It's like, fuck the opposite. It, it's like, in just, the middle. You're like, both just right. Stop. Like, just, there, there is no opposite. You yeah. know? So we got to yeah. stop trying to find these hard lines because we can't get rid of labels either, right? Like, the thing that you were recording right now is called a podcast. 
if you had to, every single time you had to describe to somebody what you do, you had to say, well, what I do is I, uh, I record these audio recordings and I then put online and people can go to specific marketplaces to download them. It would be mind-numbingly boring by the right. fifth time you had to explain it. So you call it a podcast. That's a label. That's a, but then there are nuances within podcasts. Right. Kind of like, uh, but people know. don't say podcasts are bad. No. Right? No, and, but, and that's you know, the thing about drugs. Drugs are bad. Sure. Just say no. Fuck off, Nancy Reagan. Right, I know. Mushrooms are not, you know, do you know maps? Sure, yeah. sure, sure. So the, absolutely, yeah. This guy, this teacher who introduced me to, to Aikido introduced me to maps. Oh, cool. And this was like 1993 or something. Yeah. And I've been uh, working with them oh, really? ever since. I mean, I don't do anything for them now, but I used to write for them and do stuff. That's Rick, invi- the only time I've ever been to Israel was for the World Ecstasy Conference at the Dead Sea Hyatt, sponsored oh, wow. by MAPS. That's awesome. And the Israeli military, interestingly. They were very interested Fitting in... for PTSD and things PT- like that. That's what they said, yeah, PTSD. But I got the sense they were also interested in MDMA as an adjunct to interrogation. I could see that. Which... Like a true serum of sorts. Yeah. I mean, what would you rather have? Electrodes on your... Yeah. Or <laughs> Better than waterboarding. <laughs> waterboarding or like a hot Israeli... I wonder what sodium pentothal would actually feel like to be... I mean, that's kind of like the ultimate the truth, truth serum, serum right? That's like, what they say. They used LSD, too, to try to yeah. extract secrets yeah. and things. Yeah. You know, look. Again, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny, right? I've tried MDMA. I mean, I used to sell a lot of MDMA. I've even tried in the last 15 years. It's good for couples therapy. It's great. Well, it's great for connection. Yeah. And it's interesting because as long as you don't overdo it, you actually get to maintain there's a the afterglow of it mm-hmm. last weeks. Yeah. And you get to kind of have this experience versus, you know, two two people going out drinking right. to try to connect and then they don't remember half of what happened what they and said the emotions anyway. yeah. get kind yeah. of uh, washed off. Yeah. You said at the beginning, look, saying the drugs are bad is like trying to categorize any other large group of members as good or bad. It's just insane. Yeah. It's um, everything has its purpose and role within a specific prescribed manner of using, within a specific dose and a context, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, MDMA was very promising as couples therapy in the 70s yeah. when it first was, you know, early 70s when it was first being used. We just had to go and bastardize it by deciding that it was because other people were using it for outside influences that we were going to be completely writing it off. Right. And that's part of the problem with the scheduling. I mean, you've talked yeah. about this before. The people who do the scheduling for drugs have typically not used a single one of those substances ever. Yeah. Um, you know, again, not this is everybody knows this point, but marijuana being a schedule one drug is like one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. It's funny, but it's also tragic because it totally invalidates the authority of the people in charge of drug laws. Because anyone who's ever smoked a joint goes, what the fuck? They're lying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And I, so um, then you question I everything. Weed. I used to be a, a stoner mm. when I was in college, but um, I'm absolutely one of those people who now gets completely introverted and socially awkward and not... Right. And, paranoid when I smoke, so I just can't smoke weed. You just need a, a sativa. Stay no, away from the indicas. I know, that's what everybody says. That yeah. I don't, I've, I've tried yeah. it a handful of times. I get very introverted. But yeah. but the point for me is, that doesn't then mean the drug is bad. Right. I'm okay. It's just not a good fit for not you. Not good for me. Yeah. It's all good, right? And yeah. and here's the, the thing that I think we end up finding out more and more in society, and I don't know how much of this will keep proving itself to be true, 
But you know, it's it's always the guys who are hitting the baton about um, this is the worst thing that's ever happened, and then get found, you know, fondling right. boys in the back room. Exactly. Rooms. Yeah. Um, so I'm wary of yeah. any of these sorts of. <laughs> I agree. It's. I, I, when do we get to the point where someone stands up and starts screaming, and we go, "Oh, I see your secret." Yeah. You know, wh- when does that become obvious? It yeah, seems yeah. like it should have happened a long time I mean, ago. You, you would have thought with the, you know, with the Catholic Church stuff yeah, and all that. Exactly. Like, you would have thought people would. The problem is we we end up we're so comfortable with simple explanations of just going oh the bad priests yeah no maybe we're kind of in this place in society where and I'm not condoning um, you know man child relationships by any stretch of the imagination but instead saying maybe there's something about the way the Catholic Church is pushing priests in specific ways right. that is not recognizing the actual problem and just ignoring it because of shame and stigma and all that kind yeah. of stuff whereas. Maybe those people need a different version right. of help. Maybe being, becoming priests is not the thing that's going to help them uh, stop being attracted to young boys. Right? right. In the same way that just say no and incarcerating four times more people in prisons is not the way to get people to use less drugs. Right. It's not freaking working. Yeah. We've spent trillions of dollars trying it. You know, we're apparently going to build a bigger wall and a bigger fence than we had before. Not for a split second recognizing that, and I knew these people, Money is what's buying drugs routes into here. You can't, there's so much money in drugs. Yeah. It's not about building a bigger wall because all the building a bigger wall will do is you'll have to pay the border patrol people twice as much money to get the drugs in. Right. Um, Human nature and the proclivity to want to chase the dreams and the money and all that kind of stuff. That's what's causing us. Well, that's it. I mean, you say it's not working, but that that's only if you accept the premise that the purpose is to stop drug use as opposed to keep making more money from it it is working if the point is to keep making more money from it sure. and we've seen that for you the know, military complex exactly the- they're playing both sides of every one of these things you know sure. yeah it's crazy have you what do you think about ibogaine treatment for opiates you know for opiates i think it's great for opiates um I've, the research that i've read shows that the primary use is it helps people with withdrawal so yeah. the detox becomes much, much simpler. Right. You know, look, people swear by it as a cure. Inevitably, the people I've either sent to it or, or have actually talked to and read about it and some of the research I've looked into suggests you need to have repeated doses. Mm. So, and that is sometimes as frequently as three times, eight, four times a year, uh, sometimes less frequently. Here's the issue. It doesn't, for most people, end up dealing with the underlying issues that we're driving them to use. That's the point. Yeah. So what we need is, but nobody's allowing that in the U.S., is to inclu- include something like that, which is just eye-opening, hallucinogenic experience right. that also gets people over the detox. But then that has to be followed up with some outpatient exactly. behavioral health yeah. help. And because... You're not allowed to do the treatment anyway, so people are doing it underground. I mean, there are places doing Arbogan in the U.S., just yeah. like there are people doing ayahuasca ceremonies sure. in Los Angeles right now. But because it has to go underground, we don't get to study it appropriately. Right. That's a beautiful thing about maps. Yeah. The beautiful thing about maps is yeah. somebody figured out how to, they and their friends, how to go around the traditional mechanisms and put some real scientific rigor behind the pre-existing knowledge that there's got to be some utility for this stuff. Let's just figure out what it is yeah, and then use it appropriately. Yeah. No, I admire Rick and, and the people at MAPS a lot. And they've also managed to get uh, government approval for, you know, MDMA treatment with people with terminal cancer. And um, I think the VA yeah. is going to be 
one of those avenues yeah. where it's going to be really useful, especially with all these wars that we're yeah. fighting right now. PTSD and all that. stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, we deal with PTSD and addiction all the time because people come in with early life trauma. But I hate to say it, people don't feel bad for drug addicts. People feel bad for veterans right. that got sent away and got their leg right. blown off right. and have trauma from that. And if that's our entryway, sure. and that's our entryway. Use it. Plus, let's help those people in whatever way. I mean, anybody who's sacrificed in those sort of ways yeah. honestly just deserves any tool we can possibly throw their way to just make their life better. Yeah, I agree. What's the name of your clinic again? It's called Alternatives. Alternatives Behavioral Health is uh, is the name of the company, and Addiction Alternatives is the website. Right. Addiction and you have a personal website, or you have a TEDx talk? I do, yeah. I did a TEDx. I don't have a personal website. Um, but I have a TEDx talk, and I did a talk for a website called Mind Body Green that is based on this kind of shame label place um, where I, I extend it in the Mind Body Green one. I extend it way beyond drugs and talk about, you know, we've come to this place where Muslims are terrorists and mm. black people are stupid athletes and, and, uh, and Republicans are this and Democrats are that. Um, we got to stop. We've got to stop or we're going to end up in a world where we literally start believing our own bullshit on a regular basis. Yeah. We're just going to be standing in 50 little different camps. Yeah. It's going to be like a new world order, but on a smaller scale that we get to play right <laughs> Shitty new world order. Yeah, yeah you know, I have a, a friend, Duncan Trussell. He's a comedian, great guy. And uh, I was on his podcast once and we were talking about sexuality. And, you know, I wrote this book with yeah. my wife. And uh, he said to me, you know what you are? You're a shame exorcist. Nice. <laughs> and since then, people have been calling me shame exorcist, but it sounds like you're doing some shame exorcism yourself. I think it's a worthy pursuit. I think you have to, man. I think people, yeah. people die from shame more than they die from anything else. And it's such a useless fucking emotion. It is. You know, regret. I, I understand regret. We all feel regret. That can be intelligent and helpful. And, but shame... Shame is when you start internalizing that you're a bad person, a bad human, a bad yeah. entity. A bad animal. You know, I think to me, that's one of the bases, you know, that we're we're told to think of ourselves as something other than animals. Therefore, the things about us that are animalistic are inherently shameful. That's a puritanical shit, you know, whatever, dying, death, all this stuff. Because it reminds you that you are, after all, just a fucking animal, you know? It's... I probably think about that every time I go to a large-scale bathroom in, like, a, an airport or anything like that, and I think of how dependent we've become on kind of, you know, centralizing and, and pushing away our animal nature. Yeah, you know, yeah, we, we hide depend it. on it. Yeah, yeah, Definitely. it's funny. You know Luis Bunuel, you ever heard of him? He's no. a Spanish film director, surrealist. Okay. He was friends with uh, Salvador Dali and that crowd. He has this film, I think it's The Exterminating Angel, but it opens at this uh, dinner party, all these fancy people sitting around a big table, you know, having discussions. There's the bishop and the general and all these. And um, as it sort of pans around, you see that they're not actually eating dinner. It looks like they would be eating dinner, but they're at this table. And then they're, but you see they're all sitting on toilets. And they're all just shitting together, <laughs> having this animated conversation. And then it cuts to somebody who, in a little room by themselves, quickly eating, like shame, you know, ashamed. And then they come back out and they sit down. He's just subverting the whole thing. Of, you know, why is that around. shameful? And this is, you know, a celebration. It's just like totally arbitrary. Yeah, it's funny. That is, that's funny. It's, yeah, Louis but it's good. I think it's good to call these things into question. I think it's good to have conversations like this because, you know, for every conversation like this. I don't know how many people sit and go, oh, yeah, I didn't realize 
that these things I've thought of myself, these labels, right? So I have ADHD. Uh, I lean towards depression. I'm obviously impulsive. Uh, I was a, I'm, I'm a, an ex-con, right? Um, I've been to jail. I also have a PhD. I'm also happily married with kids. Like there are all these, <laughs> it's a complex picture when you start putting <laughs> yeah. it all together. Yeah. But I like presenting to people the notion that you can have ADHD and be a successful doctor. Yeah. That doesn't preclude you from anything. I'm actually really happy. I didn't get diagnosed until my, um, my doctoral program. Um, but we, we, we give in to these labels. We give them so much power ourselves and we don't go and we don't question. We don't say, okay, somebody told me I have this thing. What does that mean? Mm. Let me go look into it and say, well, yeah, these two elements of it I agree with, but these other four I don't. Right. So why don't I just say I have these two things instead of saying I have this big disorder right. exactly. that's supposed to come with all these you know, consequences yeah. and, and defaults. Question the premise, always. Yeah. All right, listen, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Thank you so Absolutely. much for doing this, man. I hope people look up your stuff, and I hope you eventually find time to write a book. Thanks. I've been working on it for a long time. I hope the RV works out for you. Thanks. You still here? I guess you enjoyed that conversation. Well, so did I. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. You can also buy stuff through Amazon.com. Just go to ChrisRyanPhD.com or TangentiallySpeaking.com, same place, different route, and you'll see an Amazon ad on the right uh, banner. Click on that, bookmark the landing site, use that for Amazon, and anywhere between 4 and 8% of what you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra expense to you or your loved ones. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun, and you can check them out at Basin and Range band.com if you want to talk about the podcast you can go to reddit where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast uh, i drop in and answer questions post photos uh whatever pretty cool community there and uh if you want to get some t-shirts we have the civilized to death shirts sex at dawn shirts tangentially speaking shirts they're all in my mom's garage she will get them out to you in a jiffy julie my mom is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet so you can find those on my website that chris ryan chris ryan phd.com tangentially speaking.com whatever you'll find them just look in the store there if you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer that sure design t-shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out and we've been working with them ever since since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So that's pretty cool. 
and as a way to thank them, make sure you use the discount code Chris when you order anything from them so that they know that they're getting some business coming from this podcast. That's SureDesignTshirts.com. They've got all sorts of stuff, yoga pants and jewelry and beautiful stuff all made from this really nice soft cotton. The discount code is Chris. Use the discount code Chris, C-H-R-I-S, and you'll get 10% off. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a It's a big deal if you want to be free. Say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.